Chapter 20 of The City of Fire by Grace Livingston Hill. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 20 Billy had no appetite for the nice supper that Aunt Saxon had ready when he came dejectedly home that night. He had passed the parsonage and seen through the dining-room window that the rich guy was sitting at the supper-table opposite Marilyn, laughing and talking with her, and his soul was sick within him. That was his doing, nobody else but himself to blame. Aunt Saxon had ample dumplings with plenty of goo, black with cinnamon just the way he loved it, but he only minced at the first helping and scarcely tasted the second. He chopped a great many kindling after supper, and filled the wood box and thoughtfully wound the clock. Then, instead of going out with his usual, I gotta beat it, he sat languidly on the doorstep at the dusk, and when she anxiously questioned if he were sick, he said crossly, Aw, gee, can't you let a fella alone? I'm all in, can't you see it? I'm gone to bed. And knowing he had said the most alarming thing in the whole category, he slammed upstairs to his own room and flung himself across his bed. Aunt Saxon, filled with vague fears, crept softly up after him, tapping at his locked door. Willie, what is the matter? Just tell Auntie where the pain is, and I'll get you some medicine that will fix you all up by morning. I'll get you a hot water bag. Don't want no hot water bags, roared the sore-hearted Billy. Can't you let me alone? Silence a moment while Aunt Saxon pondered tearfully and sighfully. Then, Willie, is it the toothache? No, roared Billy. A pause then. Billy, you've had a fall off that wheel and hurt your head or cut your knee. I know. I've always thought you'd do that. That old wheel. You ought to have a new one. But I'll bring the arnica and bathe it, and we'll paint it with iodine. Where was it, Willie? Your knee? Billy's shoes came to the floor with a bang. Aw, oh, gee, can't you keep your mouth shut and let a fella have a little sleep? It ain't nowhere, it ain't nothing, and I didn't have no fall, and I don't want no new bicycle. Do you hear? I don't want nothing, except just to be let alone. I want to go to sleep. Ain't I been telling you for the last half hour, it ain't sinful for a fella to want to take a little sleep, is it, when he's been up half the night before taking care of a fella on the mountain? But if I ain't allowed, why then I'll get up and go out somewheres. I know plenty of places where they'll let me sleep. Oh, Willie, sobbed Aunt Saxon. That's all right, dear. Just you lie right down in your bed and take a good sleep. I didn't understand. Auntie didn't understand. All right, Willie. I'll keep it real still. Now you lie down, won't you? You will, won't you? You really lie down and sleep, won't you, Willie? Didn't I say I would, snapped Willie shamedly, and subsided on his bed again while Aunt Saxon stole painfully, noiselessly, over the creek and the stair, closed the house for the night, and crept tearfully to her own bed, where she lay for hours silently wiping the steady trickle of hopeless tears. Oh, Willie, Willie! And she had had such hopes! But Billy lay staring wide-eyed at the open square of his window that showed the little village nestling among the trees dotted here and there with friendly waking lights, the great looming mountains in the distance, and Stark Mountain, farthest and blackest of them all. He shut his eyes and tried to blot it out, but it seemed to loom through his very eyelids and mock him. He seemed to see Mark, his idol, carried between those other three dark figures into the blackness of that haunted house. He seemed to see him lying helpless, bound on the musty bed in the deserted room. Mark, his beloved Mark. Mark, who had carried him on his shoulder as a tiny child, who had ridden him on his back and taught him to swim and pitch ball and box. Mark, who let him go where even the big boys were not allowed to accompany him, and who never told on him nor treated him mean nor went back on him in any way. Mark. 
He had been the means of putting Mark in that helpless position, while circumstances, which he was now quite sure the devil had been specially preparing, wove a tangled maze about the young man's feet from which there seemed no way of extrication. Billy shut his eyes and tried to sleep, but sleep would not come. He began to doubt if he would ever sleep again. He lay listening to the evening noises of the village. He heard Jim Rafferty's voice going by to the night shift and Tom McMurtry. They were laughing softly, and once he thought he heard the name Old Haircut. The Tully baby across the street had colic and cried like murder. 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 Now why did he have to think of that word of all words? Murder. While it was crying like it wanted to murder somebody, he wished he was a baby himself so he could cry. He'd cry harder than that. Little's dog was barking again. He'd been barking all day long. It was probably at that strange guy at the parsonage. Little's dog never did like strangers. That creak was Barnes's gate with the iron weight hitched on the chain to make it shut, and somebody laughed away up the street. There went the clock. Nine o'clock. Gee, was that all? He thought it must be about three in the morning. And then he must have dozed off for a little, for when he woke with a start, it was very still and dark, as if the moon had gone away, had been and gone again, and he heard a cautious little mouse gnawing at the baseboard in his room, gnawing and stopping and gnawing again, then whisking over the lath like fingers running a scale on the piano. He had watched Miss Lynn do it once on the organ. He opened his eyes and looked hard at the window. The dim outline of Stark Mountain off in the distance began to grow into form, and what was that? A speck of light? It must be his eyes. He rubbed them sleepily and looked again. Yes, a light. Alert at once with the alertness that comes to all boys at the sound of a fire bell or some such alarm, he slid from his bed noiselessly and stole to the window. It was gone. Aw, oh, gee, he had been asleep and dreamed it. No, there it was again. Or was it? Blackness all before his eyes with a luminous sky dimly about the irregular mountaintop fringed with trees. This was foolish. He felt chilly and crept back to bed, but could not keep his eyes from the dark spot against the sky. He tried to close the lids and go to sleep, but they insisted on flying open and watching. And then came what he had been watching for. Three winks and stop. Three winks, stop, and one long flash. Then all was dark, and though he watched till the church clock struck three, he saw no more. But the old torment came back. Mark and Cherry and Lynn, the guy at the parsonage, and the girl with the flowered face and baseball bats in her ears. Aw, oh, gee, he must have a fever. It was hours since the clock had struck three. It must be nearly four, and then it would soon be light and he could get up. There seemed to be a light somewhere down the street through the trees. Not the street lamp, either. Somebody sick, likely. Hark, what was that? He wished he hadn't undressed. He sat up in bed and listened. The purr of a car. Someone was stealing Mark's car. Mark was away and everybody knew it. Nobody in Sabbath Valley would steal except, perhaps, over at the plush mill. There were new people there. Was that Mark's car? Some car. With a motion like a cat, he sprang into the necessary garment which nestled limply on the floor by the bed and was at the window in a trice. A drop like a cat to the shed roof, down the rainwater spout to the ground, a stealthy step to the back shed where old Trusty leaned, and he was away down the road a speck in the dark, and just in time to see the dim, black vision of a car speeding with muffled engine down the road toward the church. It was too dark to say it was Mark's car. He had no way but to follow." panting and puffling, pedaling with all his might, straining his eyes to see through the dark the car that was flying along without lights, his hair sticking endwise, his sleepy, hungry face peering wanly through the dark, he plodded after, 
Over the highway. He slowed down and wasn't quite sure till he heard the chug of the engine ahead, and a few seconds later a red light bloomed out behind, and he drew a new breath and pedaled on again, his heart throbbing wildly, the collar of his pajamas sticking up wildly like his hair, and one pajama leg showing whitely below his trouser like a tattered banner. The pedals cut his bare feet, and he shivered though he was drenched with perspiration, but he leaned far over his handlebars and pedaled on. Down past the Blue Duck Tavern and on into the village of Economy the car went, not rapidly now as though it were running away, but slower, and steadier like a car on legitimate business and gravely with a necessary object in view. Billy's heart began to quake. Not for nothing had he learned to read by signs and actions at the feet of the master mark. An inner well-developed sense began to tell him the truth. The car stopped in front of the chief's house, and a horn sounded softly once. Billy dismounted hastily and vanished into the shadows. A light appeared in the upper window of the house, and all was still. Presently the light upstairs went out, the front door opened, showing a dimmer light farther in, and showing the outline of the chief in flannel shirt and trousers. He came down the walk and spoke with the man in the car, and the car started again and turned in at the chief's driveway, going back to the garage. Billy left his wheel against a hedge and hiked noiselessly after, slinking behind the garage door till the driver came out. It was Mark. He went down the drive, met the chief at the gate, and they went silently down the dark street, their rubber heels making no noise on the pavement. Economy was asleep and no wiser, but Billy's heart was breaking. He watched the two and followed afar till they turned down the side street, which he feared. He stole after and saw them enter the brick building that harbored the county jail. He waited with shaking limbs and bleeding heart, waited, hoping, fearing, dreading, but not for long. The chief came out alone. It was as he had feared. Then, as if the very devil himself pursued him, Billy turned and fled, retrieving his bicycle, and whirled away noiselessly down the road, caring not where he was going, ready to hang himself, wild with despair and self-condemnation. The dark lay over the valley like a velvet mantle, black and soft with white wreaths of mist like a lady's veil, flung aside and blown to the breeze, but Billy saw naught but red winking lights and a jail, grim and red in the midnight, and his friend's white face passing in beneath the arched door. The bang of that door as it shut was echoing in his soul. He passed the Fenner cottage. There were lights and moving about, but he paid no heed. He passed the Blue Duck Tavern and saw the light in the kitchen where the cook was beginning the day's work, just as the rest of the house had been given over to sleep. There was the smell of bacon on the air. Someone was going away on the milk train, likely. He thought it out dully as he passed with the sick, reeling motion of a rider whose life has suddenly grown worthless to him. Over bottles and nails and bumping over humps, old Trusty carried him down the hill to Sabbath Valley, past the graveyard where the old stones peered eerily up from the dark mounds like wakened, curious sleepers, past the church in the gray of the morning with a pinkness in the sky behind. Lynn lying in a sleepless bed, listening to every sound from Mark's car to return, and recognizing Billy's back-wheel squeak. On down the familiar street, glad of the thick maples to hide him, hunching up the pajama leg that would wave below the rapidly increasing light, not looking toward the carters, plodding on, old trusty on the back porch. Shinning up the water spout, tiptoeing over the shed roof, a quick spring in his own window and he was safe on his bed again, staring at the red morning light shining weirdly, cheerily on his wall and the rooster crowing lustily below his window. Drat that rooster! What did it want to make that noise for? Wasn't there a rooster in that Bible story? Oh, no, that was Peter, perhaps. He turned hastily from the subject and gave his attention to his toilet. 
Aunt Saxon was squeaking past his door, stopping to listen. Willie? Well, in a low growl, not encouragingly. Oh, Willie, you up? You better? Nothing the matter with me. Oh, breakfast ready? Oh, yes, Willie. I'm so glad you're feeling better. She squeaked on down the stairs, sniffing as if from recent tears. Doggone those tears, those everlasting tears. Why didn't a woman know? Now what did he have to do next? Do? Yes, he must do something. He couldn't just sit here, could he? What about Stark's Mountain and the winking light? What about that sissy guy making up to Miss Lynn? If only Mark were here now, he would tell him everything. Yes, he would. Mark would understand. But Mark was in that unspeakable place. Would Mark find a way to get out? He felt convinced he could, but would he? From the set of his shoulders, Billy had a strong conviction that Mark would not. Mark seemed to be going there for a purpose. Would the purpose be complete during the day sometime and would Mark return? Billy must do something before night. He wished it might be to smash the face of that guy Shafton. Assuredly, he must do something. But first he must eat his breakfast. He didn't want to, but he had to. Aunt Saxon would raise a riot if he didn't. Well, there was ham. He could smell it. Ham for breakfast. Aw, gee. Saxie was getting extravagant. Somehow, pretty soon, if he didn't hang himself, he must find a way to brighten up Saxie and pay her back for all those pink tears. And over on Stark's Mountain, as the morning dawned, a heavy foot climbed the haunted stairs, and a bloodshot eye framed itself at the little half-moon in the front window that looked out over Lone Valley toward Economy, and down over Sabbath Valley toward Monopoly, commanding a strategic position in the whole wild, lovely region. Down in the cellar, where the rats had hitherto held sway a soft chip-chip, Chipping sound went steadily forward hour by hour, with spaces between the chip-chip shipping again, a new kind of rat burrowing into the earth, over close to the edge of the long-deserted scanty coal-pile. While up under the dusty beams in a dark corner, various old parcels were stowed away, awaiting a later burial. From the peephole where the eye commanded the situation, a small black speck went whirling along the road to Monopoly, which might be a boy on a bicycle— but no one came toward Stark's Mountain on that bright sunny morning to disturb the quiet worker in the dark cellar. Billy was on his way to Monopoly, his aunt appeased for the time being, with the distinct purpose of buying the morning paper. Not that he was given to literature or perused the dairy news as a habit, but an idea had struck him. There might be a way of finding out about Mark without letting anyone know he was finding out. It might be in the paper." Down at Monopoly, no one would notice if he bought a county paper, and he could stop in the woods and read it. But when he reached the newsstand, he saw a pile of New York papers lying right in front, and the great black headlines caught his eye. Fate of Lawrence Shafton Still Unknown Son of multimillionaire of New York City who was kidnapped on Saturday night on his way from New York to a weekend house party at Beechwood, New Jersey, not yet heard from. No clue to his whereabouts. Detectives out with bloodhounds searching country. Mother in a state of collapse. It is feared the bandits have fulfilled their threats and killed him. Father frantically offering any reward for news of son. Billy read no further. He clapped down a nickel and stuffed the paper indifferently into his pocket, almost forgetting in his disgust to purchase the county news. Aw, gee, he said to himself. More of that Judas stuff. I gotta get rid of them thirty pieces. He stepped back and bought a county paper, stood idly looking over its pages a moment with the letters swimming before his eyes, at last discovering the column where the economy murder was discussed, and without reading it, stuffed it in the pocket of the other side and rode away into the sunlight. Murder! It was called murder! Then Dolph must be dead! 
The plot thickened. Dead. Murder. Who killed him? Surely he wasn't responsible for that, at least. He was out on the road with Mark when it happened. He hadn't done anything which in the remotest way had to do with the killing. He thanked his lucky stars for that. And Mark. But who did it? Cherry? She might be a reason for what Mark did last night. At a turn in the road where a little grove began, he got off his wheel and, seeking a sheltered spot, dropped down under a tree to read his papers. His quick eye searched through the county paper first for the sensational account of the murder, and a gray look settled over his pug countenance as he read. So might a mother have regarded her child in deep trouble, or a lover his beloved. Billy's spirit was bowed to the depths. When he had devoured every word, he flung the paper aside wrathfully and sat up with a kind of hopeless gesture of his hard young hands. "'Ah, oh, gee!' he said aloud, and suddenly he felt a great wet blob rolling down his freckled cheek. He smashed it across into his hair with a quick slash of his dirty hand, as if it had been a mosquito annoying him, and lest the other eye might be meditating a like trick, he gave that a vicious dab and hauled out the other paper, more as a matter of form than because he had a deep interest in it. All through the description of those wonderful Shafton jewels and the mystery that surrounded the disappearance of the popular young man, Billy could see the word murder dancing like little black devils in and out among the letters. The paragraph about Mrs. Shafton's collapse held him briefly. Oh, gee! He could see pink tears everywhere. He supposed he ought to do something about that. For all the world like Aunt Saxon. He seemed to sense her youth through the printed words as he had once sensed Mrs. Carter's. He saw her back in school, pretty and little. Rich women were always pretty and little to his mind, pretty and little and helpless and always crying. It was then that the thought was born that made him look off to the hills and ponder with drawn brows and anxious mane. He took it back to his home with him and sat moodily staring at the lilac bushes and gave Aunt Saxon another bad day wondering what had come to Willie. She would actually have been glad to hear him say, I gotta beat it, I gotta date with the fellas. That evening the rumor crept back to Sabbath Valley from who knows where that Dolph was dead and Mark Carter had run away. End of chapter 20